Hello everyone, welcome back. Um, my name's Steve, I'm one of the leaders here and um, I've got the, uh, the honour and the privilege now of introducing our guest speaker, Adrian Holloway. So why don't we welcome Adrian, Adrian as he comes up. Um, myself and Trudy have had uh, the privilege of knowing Adrian and Julia and um, his family, his, his four girls now. Um, for many years since, um, Adrian used to be part of the leadership team at Oasis Birmingham, where we um, used to be members. So I've known Adrian for, ooh, good, tw- nearly 20 years probably, and have benefited um, from his gift, his evangelistic gift, his teaching gift, um, his um, uh, equipping gift, equipping people in uh, apologetics and evangelism. Um, and you're an author as well, aren't you? Um, and uh, he... Yes, yeah. And so he's and he's very humble. So um, Adrian is amazing. Many of us, for many of us, Adrian needs no introduction, does he? Because we've known Adrian for many years, and um, he's served the family, the New Frontiers family of churches, for many years. And um, particularly our young people at New Day year after year, where they see um, many people saved, many people healed um, uh, as a result of the gift, the grace that's on Adrian. So we are really, really grateful that you've come all the way to Solihull. Um, and we're so glad for you to be here. And we can't wait to receive what you have for us. Um, just to say as well, actually, this is, I mean, this is God's timing because God has been speaking to us as a church as a leadership, um, about actually what he's doing in us as a church, um, overflowing and, and, and that he's preparing us for a time to kind of go out um, and to see a harvest in the communities that we're amongst. So, you know, this is, it's no coincidence that, that Adrian has turned up here at this time to help equip us for that mission. Adrian, Thank you let's welcome much. him. Thank you very much. Wow. Thank you very much. Well, it's, uh, thank you, Steve, for that very warm introduction. And of course, as I was on the short walk from the car park here to where we're meeting, I asked Steve the crucial question. I said, Steve, is it Solihull or Solihull? <laughs> and I thought, maybe we could just establish that. Could you, could you just raise your hand if it's Solihull? Solihull. Right. OK, hands down. And now Solihull. Solihull? Oh, there you go. Fantastic. Well, look, it's great to be with you. Here's a picture of my wife and kids. And uh, I, I told a woman uh, in West London where we, where we live that uh, Julia and I have got four daughters. She said, oh, she said, that'll be pricey. <laughs> I said, pardon? She said, that'll be pricey. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, did you know that the average cost of a wedding in the UK is now £15,000. She said, factoring in inflation. Yeah, factoring in inflation, she said, that means you're probably going to have to stump up 70,000 quid to marry them all off. I said, I haven't got 70,000 quid. She said, well, she said, you're going to have to rob a bank. I said, I can't rob a bank. I'm a Christian. She said, oh, she said, how very inconvenient. (laughs) But actually, the good news is we we had quite a good conversation after that. I was able to tell her that when I did put my trust in Christ, that for me, it was actually a brilliant experience. It was a fantastic experience for me. I began to tell her about some of the benefits that I received when I did put my trust in 
in Christ. And this morning, I wonder if we could just have a look at some of those benefits. I'd like to look, if I may, at some of the fringe benefits that you and I receive when we share the good news about Jesus with other people who don't know him yet. Now, obviously, we don't tell other people the good news about Jesus for our benefit, but it just so happens that when we do, there actually are some incidental fringe benefits for us. So just for this morning, why don't we have a look at those? So the more that we focus on unconvinced, on unreached people, let's look at five benefits. Okay, benefit number one, there'll be more joy in our lives. I was talking to a young woman in our church called Heather, and Heather's friends with these two sisters. They're called Sarah and Anna. Now, neither Sarah nor Anna would have called themselves Christians, but Heather from our church, she invites both of them to our church Alpha Launch Party. This is a party where we're going to say, hey, come back next Wednesday, and if you want to find out more about the Christian faith, we can introduce you to Christianity. So that was the invitation. The following morning, Sarah, she's the older of these two sisters, she is a trainee lawyer. And her first responsibility, the following morning, after the invitation to Alpha the night before, is she's got some legal documents, some bits of paper that she has been keeping in her flat overnight. She's got to take these documents to court for a trial the following morning. And so on the one hand, you could say, well, this is really quite a straightforward responsibility. Sarah's got to move some bits of paper from A to B. On the other hand, Sarah's boss has carefully explained this trial at the courthouse cannot start until those bits of paper have arrived in the building. So Sarah thinks to herself, well, don't panic, she thinks. I will just set my alarm earlier than I normally would. She sets two alarms. Sarah even arranges for her friend to phone her just in case her two alarms fail. Following morning, she gets up on time, everything's cool, she gets to the end of her road, she goes to the main road, she gets to the main road and discovers as she gets to her bus stop that overnight the council have coned off the bus lane. There's a sign-up explaining they're replacing the Victorian sewers, there won't be any buses on that road today. She thinks, don't panic, I will simply walk to the underground train station. So she walks to the underground train station, when she gets there, the gates are locked, They're padlocked. There's a whiteboard sign outside saying, London Underground regrets to inform you that the Northern Line is part suspended today. She thinks, don't panic. I will simply walk to the Overland train station. Quite a long walk. So she walks to the Overland train station. When she arrives there, her heart sinks. People are queuing to get in to the Overland train station. So she joins the queue She queues through the ticket barriers. She has to queue all the way down the steps. Even when she's on the platform, she has to queue on the platform. As the trains are arriving, she's getting closer and closer to the front, to the front of the platform. Eventually, she is at the front of the platform. And she looks at the board. She's definitely going to catch the next train. She looks at the board to see when it's coming. And she thinks, oh, no. I I don't know if a train arriving here at that time is going to get these bits of paper to court before the advertised start time of the trial. And she starts to get really worried. And then she thinks, what would my Christian friend, Heather, do? 
What would Heather do if Heather were in this situation? She thinks Heather would pray to God. Now, Sarah has never prayed a prayer to God as an adult before, but on the platform she thinks, do you know what? I'm really stuck here. I am going to pray to God. Not out loud, but she begins to pray. She closes her eyes and she begins to pray, hello, God, um, it's me. Um, Sarah, yes, I guess you probably knew that. So, um, yeah, I, I would be really, really, really grateful, um, God, if somehow uh, you could get these bits of paper uh, to court before the advertised start time of the trial. Right now, I can't particularly see how you do that, but if you could possibly help me out, I'd be really, really grateful. So, um, thank you very much. Um, yours sincerely. Uh, over and out. Amen, she prays. She opens her eyes. She looks at the man who's standing next to her on the platform. The man who is standing next to her on the platform is the barrister. The man who she's supposed to give the papers to at the courthouse is standing next to her on the platform. But she's so shocked. She doesn't actually say anything. She just hands them over. The barrister on the platform, just waiting for the train, gets given these bits of paper, immediately recognizes the case and says, what a marvelous service. (laughs) I'm really very impressed. This is really rather good. Now I can prepare on the train. Do pass on my thanks to the partners of your firm. This is really rather good. Now I can prepare on the train. Thank you very much indeed. I'm very grateful. Thank you so much. I'm very, very grateful to you. Thank you very much. So the train arrives. The barrister gets on the train. And Sarah's left there. Come on. I mean, what are the chances? I mean, really, what are the chances? What are the chances that the first time that I ever pray a prayer to God as an adult, like, like the person who lives on the planet who could most obviously have helped me would, by chance happened to be standing right next to me at that moment. And so, you might not be surprised to hear that the following Wednesday, Sarah turned up. (laughs) At that Alpha course, week one, sorry, the launch party, she decided, she came with her sister Anna to the launch party, and they decided they'd signed up for week one. I met them on week one, and... um, Anyway, they came every Wednesday, these two sisters, and towards the end, we all went away for this weekend away, and on the weekend away, towards the end of this course, both Sarah and her Anna, they both made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. And then sometime after that, both Sarah and Anna, they were both baptized at our church, and actually sometime after that, both Sarah and Anna, they both married young men in our church. They didn't marry the same young man. (laughs) That would be like a really bizarre end to the story. That didn't happen. That didn't happen. Anyway, I was so excited about what happened that I went back to Heather. Do you remember Heather at the start of the story? She was the... Heather, it's amazing what happened to your friend Sarah and Anna, yeah? And what she said in reply was so memorable that I went home and I wrote it down. She said, the more I prayed for Sarah to know Christ, I found myself thinking how amazing it would be for Sarah to have eternal life. She said, praying regularly for Sarah brought the wonder of my own salvation front and center in a new way. Heather said, focusing on unconvinced people 
has reminded me that all my own problems are in the context of me being guaranteed certain of a place in heaven. Heather said, I found it hard to stay offended and stay upset about things when I'm continually having my mind flooded with the fact I'm going to be spending most of my time in heaven. She said, thinking evangelistically has built in my mind a mountain of gratitude for my own salvation. She said, it's hard for the seeds of bitterness and disappointment to take root in a thankful heart. Wow. Colossians 1. This is such an exciting, empowering verse because it shows how much God is with you. How you and Christ are now part of the same team. Can you see how important you are? Can you see how valuable you are? You are the kingdom of God. When your alarm goes off tomorrow morning, when you hit the shower, Christ in you is up. And the kingdom of darkness is not happy about that. Because you see, the devil the devil would be delighted if all Christians were to live in cozy Christian ghettos. If all, if there were, the devil would be delighted if there were no Christians in healthcare, no Christians working in business, no Christians in media, no Christians in sport, no Christians in music, no Christians in the news media, no Christians in film, no Christians. The devil would be delighted if all Christians lived in cozy Christian ghettos. Why? Because the devil knows in John chapter 17, Jesus did not pray, Oh, Father, please take the nice Christians out of the nasty world. No, the devil knows. In John 17, Jesus prayed, Father, keep the Christians in the world. Why would Jesus pray, pray that prayer? Because you are the kingdom of God. Wherever you go, God goes. Wherever you are working now, God is working. When you enter your workplace tomorrow morning, Christ in you arrives. Jesus is going to work tomorrow through you. Benefit number two. We will live with a greater sense of our value, dignity, and purpose. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. One of my uh, four kids came home from school one day, and in her bag, primary school bag, she's got this letter It's an invitation to the school multicultural fundraising evening. And at this event, I get talking to another dad, and he is wearing a Mexican hat, a Hawaiian shirt, and a grass skirt. (laughs) Because it was a multi, yeah, see, multi, yeah, yeah, see. So I look at this guy in this amazing getup. First thing I ever say to him is I say, wow. I say, where are you from? You know, with your multicultural, where are you from? And he says, Iraq. Like, like he really was from Iraq, you know, irrespective of the outfit. So, anyway, we have a brief conversation about recent events in Iraq. There then follows a whole hour of multicultural dancing. So we're dancing around the school hall. So this is my multicultural dancing. So we're dancing around the whole hour of this, right? All the parents, all the mums and all the dads like this, 
Um, I'm not sure how we were raising money for the school, but this is what we were doing. Anyway, uh, I forgot that bit. Um, anyway, after an hour of this, I bump into this guy, second time, this other dad, in this amazing outfit. I ask him something different. I say, would you say that everyone in Iraq is a Muslim? He doesn't answer the question. But what he does is he beckons me secretively, furtively towards the bar. So he walks off towards the bar. He gets to the bar. I follow him. He leans on the bar. He looks both ways. He checks the coast is clear. He says, I have completely rejected Islam. I lean on the bar. I look both ways. I check that the coast is clear. I say, so have I. <laughs> he says, no way. That's, that's an amazing coincidence. I said, yeah, it is. He said, well, he said, well, we've got to talk about this. I said, yeah, we have. He said, well, why don't you come over with your wife and kids? And my wife, Mira, and I, we will cook you a full Kurdistani dinner. Come over, come over at 3 p.m. on Saturday with your wife and with your kids. We will cook you a full Kurdistani dinner. Come over at 3 p.m. That was the invitation. Now, just to give you a little background to what happened that particular Saturday. In fact, most Saturdays, to be honest. Most Saturdays, ladies and gentlemen, I am placed in sole charge of our four children. Yeah? And the way that I cope with this responsibility is uh, take them swimming. Yeah? Family splash. This is a common dad thing. Okay, well, m- maybe just where I come from. Okay, anyway, so take a swing. And, and the thing about, sw- I'm all right with the swimming. I can do the swimming bit. What I find hard with these little girls is like the changing room routine afterwards because they've got really long hair. So after you're out, yeah, somebody over here appreciates this. So when you're out, you've got, first of all, the shampooing of the hair. Then you've got the rinsing of the hair. And then you've got the brushing of the hair. Yeah, then the combing of the hair, then the blow dry. I haven't got any hair. This is quite a palaver from my point of view. Like all this time and all this, you know. My point is, it just takes me a really long time to get these kids through the changing room, so that I'm running late. Basically, I'm looking at the clock. Oh, great! I, oh dear. Well, have I got? Enough? I don't. I'm back home by this stage. I'm looking. I think. Have I got enough time to go back out in the car and get Tesco's Express, buy some lunch, come back, prepare the lunch, and then tidy up all the lunch, get everyone in the car, and get over to Salas Flat by three o'clock. So I say to my wife and kids, do you know what? Let's all go to McDonald's. And just like that, just like this young man here. (laughs) Yes. Yes. My kids go, yes, that's such a great call, Daddy. That was such a great moment in your life. Yes. Before you change your mind, let's go to McDonald's. So we all go to McDonald's. And at McDonald's, I have a Big Mac. This is relevant to the story. A Big Mac, (laughs) large, large fries, and a large strawberry milkshake. Yeah. Okay. So we arrive on time. Three. We arrive on time. That was mission accomplished. Three o'clock. We turn up. Ring on the doorbell. Salah's wife, Mira. She opens the door. She's a doctor. She says, "Welcome. Welcome to our home." She says, "Let us all go through and have dinner." And I'm thinking, what now? I thought the invitation was come over at 3 p.m. and then later on at some unspecified time in the evening we will have dinner. But no, the actual words of the invitation was, come over at 3 p.m. and we will have dinner, dinner being a 3 p.m. meal. And so she opens the door. There's quite a large table 
about from here to the curtain, circular t- full of trays of food. And then she goes into the kitchen. She's bringing other trays. These are, she explains, these are regional dishes from different parts of Kurdistan. And so they're all there. And as I look at this table, there is only one chair. And she explains that as the guest of honor, I am to sit in the chair. And that nobody else can start eating until I have started eating. And so I sit in my chair. I feel like a king. There's various people standing around attending to my needs. I'm there in my chair. But then I think of my Big Mac, my large fries, my large strawberry milkshake. I am already full of Ronald McDonald. But then I think of that verse where Jesus commands his followers, eat whatever is set before you. And I think how when I was a young Christian, I promised that I would obey every command that Jesus gave. I can tell you, at the end of this meal, I've never felt so bloated in all my life. I can feel myself physically expanding inside Salah's flat. And I'm sort of rolling around in his flat, sort of passing in and out of consciousness in my inebriated state. Which is a bit of a shame because Salah's describing to me something really quite important. Salah is telling me about his profound intellectual rejection of Islam. Salah is complaining to me that he's got a spiritual void in his life. Salah is asking me, can you help? And I can tell you, folks, I I felt honored. I felt privileged to be in the room for the conversation that followed. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. You know, at the end of this visit, when we got up to leave, it was actually quite hard for me to get up to leave. Um, (laughs) So I didn't, I wasn't even standing, I was leaning against the wall in the corridor, propping myself up. But I never forget what he said. He said, we want to be with you. We want you to be our friends. And I was deeply moved. Actually, all I did was I agreed to go to the school multicultural fundraising evening. But God brought someone from Iraq who he knew was spiritually open and was spiritually searching. At the gym, I needed to go to the gym after this episode. (laughs) At the gym, I get talking to this mate of mine called Chris. Um, Chris would not have described himself as a Christian. And um, first thing Chris says to me in the gym, he says, Adrian, what have you been up to this week? I said, well, Chris, I'm preparing a talk, like a message, to help Christians reach unconvinced seekers with the good news about Jesus. He said, Adrian, can I give you some advice? I said, "Uh, yeah, Chris, go ahead. He said, Adrian... Tell them, tell them not to say the good book says this and the good book says that because people like me, Adrian, are cynical. Cynical about religion. I said, Chris, most people I meet are cynical about religion. Most people I meet, Chris, are positive about relationships. Most people I meet, Chris, are cynical about religion. And most people I meet, Chris, have a high view, a high opinion of Jesus of Nazareth as a person, 
I said, the great thing is, Chris, what is on offer is not religion. What is on offer, Chris, is a relationship with Jesus that goes on forever. He said, oh, he said, I can see how that could be appealing. (laughs) I said, Chris, do you believe in God? He said, well, that depends. I said, on what? He said, on where I am. I said, what on earth do you mean? He said, well, when I get onto my bicycle and I'm cycling out of central London and I get into the Surrey countryside and I can see the trees and the grass and the hills all around me, I cannot bring myself to believe that it's all just a total accident. I then asked Chris my favorite question. I said, Chris, do you believe that you're alive for a reason? He said, yes but I have absolutely no idea what it is. And again, I felt honored. I felt privileged to be in the room for the conversation that followed. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Folks, You have been appointed as an ambassador for Christ. And God is on your side. And all the resources of heaven have been placed at our disposal. We have been promised when we do speak up on his behalf, God is going to back us up. We'll be amazed to see how much the Holy Spirit will help us. Okay, third benefit of our five this morning, number three, we'll see ourselves making a difference. Now, you love this. You love it when the God who is really there, the God of the Bible, when God's love comes into somebody else's life through you, you love that. You you love that. And actually, it's as we go that Jesus says, I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. Jesus said, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, look, it's not actually the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And Paul, in the Bible, says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus said of his own mission, he said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. So we need to remember that Jesus himself made a conscious, deliberate decision to hang out with unbelieving people. So his reputation, Jesus' reputation was something like this. Oh, yeah, we've all heard of Jesus of Nazareth. Everyone's talking about him. Jesus from Capernaum. Yeah, here's what we've heard about him. He's a glutton. Jesus, he's a, he's a wine-bibber. Jesus from Capernaum. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And people said that about Jesus because, yes, yes, Jesus did make a habit of deliberately spending time with irreligious people. So as soon as we even start praying for that skeptical person, We are pointing ourselves, we're lining ourselves up with the same mission that Jesus lined himself up with. And as we do, all the resources of heaven swing in behind us and God himself is cheering us on. Just as clear when Jesus says to his followers in John 20 verse 21, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Wow. Now I find, certainly when I became a Christian, 
I, I had come to believe that God the Father really did send Jesus the Son. But what was an amazing, delicious, sumptuous thing is to think that in the same way that God the Father sent Jesus the Son, that God is now sending you and me into our world, to our circle, the people who we know who don't know Jesus yet. He says as much. Jesus says as much. When we overhear, this is Jesus praying to his Father for you. How cool is that? John 17, 18, he says, As you have sent me into the world, Father, I have sent them into the world. Wow. So, in the same way and to the same extent that God the Father sent Jesus the Son, we've now been sent into our world. The people who we know in our family, in our office, in our circle of influence, wherever we live, wherever we are, the people in our world who don't yet know Christ. As much as the Father was with Jesus, the Father is now with you. Okay, fourth benefit this morning, folks. You'll become a stronger person with a fuller understanding of Christ. Philemon verse 6 says, it's actually through being active in sharing our faith, that's how we become increasingly aware of how great our inheritance in Christ really is. For example, this is an old uh, picture of some friends of mine uh, called Paul and Helen the Hanley. This is a story about a couple in our church called Richard and Jill. Richard and Jill were active in sharing their faith with this couple, Paul and Helen. Now, when this picture was taken, neither Paul nor Helena would have called themselves Christians. In fact, quite the opposite, because Paul uh, was quite a keen or outspoken atheist, someone who actually quite liked uh, being vociferously against Christianity. That was part of his kind of personality. Paul was an insurance broker in the city of London. He was a commuter, so he lived uh, with his wife, Helena, um, there. They were living in Caterham in Surrey. He commuted into the city of London where he works as an insurance broker. They got, they're got happily married. They've got this lovely house. They've got three lovely sons. And um, anyway, um, Helena, Paul's wife, she's a nurse at the East Surrey Hospital. And the thing is that now um, Paul and Helena are Christians. And in fact, um, they lead a church in Cornwall. Uh, this is actually the second church that Paul and Helena have led. Now, if you are anything like me, when you hear something like that, you think, hmm, how does that happen? How do you go from being a 35-year-old atheist insurance broker to becoming a Christian and then becoming the pastor of a church? I mean, how does that happen? Folks, this is what happened. One afternoon in Caterham, in the park, Paul and Helena went for a walk on the path as they're walking along the path together, they see the couple from our church, Richard and Jill. Richard and Jill are sitting over here on the grass. Paul and Helena are walking along the path. Paul sees the Christian couple and thinks, oh, no, this is the Christian couple. Because, do you remember I told you that Paul's wife, Helena, is a nurse at the East Surrey Hospital? Jill from our church, she's a nurse at the East Surrey Hospital. Jill has been active in sharing her faith with her friend Helena. Helena, Paul's wife, has been asking Jill questions about her Christian faith. Jill's been answering the questions. These two have struck up a bit of a rapport. Paul is aware this is the Christian couple. So what he does is he blanks them. He just walks straight along, pretending that he hasn't seen them. But the problem is there's just been too much eye contact. And so Paul has to do that thing where he has to stop and say, 
almost walked straight by you. I didn't see you there. How are you doing? It's great to see you, Paul says. But the thing is, Richard and Jill from our church, they're having a picnic. Paul and Helena are holding picnic boxes. And so the social rules of Surrey dictate Paul and Helen have to stop and have their picnic with Richard and Jill. And Paul's thinking, oh, I can't believe How am I got stuck with the Christians? I can't believe this. He thinks, do you know what? I will just have some fun with them, Paul thinks. If they do bring up the subject of God and Jesus and whatever it is the Christians talk about, I'll just be able to point out the factual errors, the logical inconsistencies. I'll be able to tie them up in their own words, Paul thinks. And you know, two minutes into this conversation, Paul's wife, Helena, asks Jill a question directly about her Christian faith. And for the next hour and a half, the four of them have this full-on, no-holds-barred discussion about God and Jesus and such things. And at the end of this conversation, as Paul walks back to his car with his wife, Helena, with his empty picnic boxes, Paul says, I remember thinking to myself that I knew, I knew that it would be easy to win the conversation, as Paul sees it, against the Christians. But he remembers thinking, it was even easier than I thought it would be. He puts the picnic boxes in the boot of his car. He says, I went to the driver's seat. I sat in the driver's seat. He said, I put my key in the ignition. And then before I switched the engine on, I heard myself say these words. Helena, darling, you know that credit card bill? that I told you yesterday was this much? I'm never so sorry, darling. I lied. It was much more. (laughs) It was actually this much. Well, there then followed a full and frank exchange of views (laughs) between the married couple. Anyway, this dies down. Paul drives home thinking, what was that all about? Where'd that come from? Drives home. Parks up on his gravel drive. Feels this compelling urge to go into his study. So he goes into his study, sits down at his desk, gets out a pad, a blank paper, and just starts writing a list of everything he can think of in the whole of his life that he's ever done that he thinks was wrong. And when I met Paul, I asked him about this. I said, what was going on? He said, well, it was just like being sick. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I knew once I got it all out, I'd feel better. He said, I went back every day into my office, into my study, for three days, just writing. I said, why did it take you three days? (laughs) He said, well, I had 35 years of stuff to write down. Now, you guys already know the end of the story, because I told you Paul and Helena become Christians. In fact, I even told you they go on to lead a church. In fact, now they're leading this other church in Cornwall. So the first time that I ever met Paul and Helena was on their first ever Sunday at church. So I was on the welcome team. I was down there by the, by the door, you know, welcoming people. They're walking up. This couple, I don't recognize, and they have three sons. I think, oh, I don't know this family. So I introduce myself. They introduce themselves. I say, oh, do you know? I said, do you know anyone here? They said, oh, we know Richard. Oh, I know Richard. Yeah. So I said, well, would you mind me asking you, Paul, is this your first Sunday here at our church this morning? He said, oh, yes. It's our first Sunday at any church. We've just become Christians earlier this week. I thought, what a great answer. 
So I said, Paul, do you mind me asking you how? How did that happen? He then tells me the story that I just told you. And as you can imagine, towards the end of the story, I am absolutely desperate to ask Paul, Paul, what was it? What was it, Paul, that Richard and Jill said to you that afternoon in the park that made you want to confess about the credit card bill, then made you want to spend three days in your study writing a list of everything that you'd ever done wrong? What was it, Paul, that Richard and Jill said to you that afternoon in the park that made you, Paul, at the age of 35, want to leave atheism and become a Christian? Paul, what did they say? And he said, oh, he said, uh, it wasn't anything they said. I said, well, what was it then? He said, oh, he said, it was them. It was something about them. Paul would now say it was Christ in them. Yeah. Do you know the funny thing about this conversation I'm having with this guy, Paul? He's a first-time visitor at our church. He's only been at our church at this point for 10 minutes. Eight years later, Paul Hanley was the pastor of our church. And now he and Helena, they lead this other church in Camborne in Cornwall. And what was happening that summer, Paul and Helena would say, is that the real Jesus, the Jesus who really is alive, was working through Richard and Jill to create within Paul a feeling, a desire, a craving that Paul had never experienced before. Paul suddenly wanted to feel clean. He wanted to feel pure. He wanted to feel washed. He wanted to feel, he'd never felt this before. He wanted to feel renewed. This thing, a desire had come up within him. That summer, Paul and Helena discovered there's more to life than being happy, because they were happy. There's more to life than being happily married. They were happily married. More to life than being happily married with kids. More to life than having a good job. He had a good job. More to life than, you know, there's a real God. That, that was their discovery. You know what? You're never going to believe this. There's actually a real, there was a real God who really loves you. But just think about what happened from Richard and Jill's point of view. If Jill were to walk in through that door right now, and I were to give her this microphone, and I would say, do you want to tell these good folks here? What did you learn through that experience? She would say, wow, I know more about what the Holy Spirit can do. How the Holy Spirit creates within people a desire to want to be pure and clean. And so now I've got a, a fuller understanding of every good thing that I have in Christ. Through being active and sharing my faith, Jill would say, I now have a fuller understanding of every good thing that I have in Christ. Wow. Okay, fifth and final benefit this morning. Lastly then, folks, we'll become more like Jesus. How so? Well, loads of ways, actually. One way is, well, we know Jesus drew people to God through lots of different ways. One of the ways that Jesus did that, of course, was by telling stories. Yeah, The parables, we're familiar with this. So as Jesus makes you increasingly more like him, don't be surprised if you find that you get more and more pleasure through storytelling. Because the people love to listen to Jesus' stories. The Bible says the common people heard him gladly. Now, somebody could hear that and say, yeah, I get that. I get the, the power, the relevance of storytelling. But somebody could say, the thing is, 
I don't really have a story. Somebody could say, you know, I don't have a story, for example, about becoming a Christian, someone could say, because the truth is that, well, I was brought up in a Christian home, and, uh, you know, my parents were Christians, and they took me to church, and I don't really have, like, a dramatic before I became a Christian, and after, because I was only eight years old. Somebody could say, I was only eight years old when I became a Christian. So I don't have, like, a dramatic before I was a Christian story. And you and I know there are some Christians who have a, a very dramatic before story. I don't know about you, but I find often Christians from America <laughs> will have a very dramatic before story. And it might begin something like this. Dude, I had a thousand dollar a day crack cocaine habit. And I was raised in the ghetto. And my life was a blur, a blur of gang violence. And I was being chased by the feds. But then one night in prison, she. No, you can't say that. You can't say that because before you became a Christian, you were only eight years old. And you were attending a Church of England primary school <laughs> in Guildford. Now, it just so happens, my wife, Julia, is the most effective personal evangelist that I know. So Julia has led more of her friends to Christ than anyone else I know. Yet, Julia grew up in a wonderful, loving Christian family. She, of all people, could very easily say, oh, I don't really have a testimony. So what does she do? Does she make one up? (laughs) Does she say, yeah, yeah, I was abandoned by my parents at birth. And I was raised by a pack of wolves. And it was when I was running with the wolves, that's when I first learned to hunt and kill with my bear. And it was about that stage in my life that I first discovered voodoo. Is that what she says? No, that's not what she says. Because the truth is that Judah did not grow up in the Bronx. She never saw action in Vietnam. Before she came to Christ, she attended Croydon High School for Girls. And about the most rebellious thing that my wife has ever done was once when she handed in her Latin homework late. (laughs) So what is her 45-second faith story? This is what she says. As a child, she says, I worried a lot. Even though, really, I had nothing to worry about. She said, like many people, I was a born warrior. My parents brought me up to believe the Bible. I became a Christian age 12. I got baptized age 13. When I was 17 years old, I got glandular fever, and I missed a lot of school. I could have got really worried. But I felt God's presence, and I learned not to get worried about things. I had this amazing sense of peace. I went to university. I could easily have turned my back on Jesus, but I found that I didn't want to. God had done something real in my life. I was a born warrior, but God gave me peace. Maybe the band would like to come and join me. Folks, one day, the Bible says there will be so many people in heaven that it will be impossible for anyone to count them. By this stage, we know there will be at least one person from every tribe and every tongue and every language and every single ethnic group. They'll all be there around the throne of God in heaven. So what that means is that from now, today, 2019, Until that day, at some point in the future, we know millions and millions and millions of people are going to come 
to get to know God and enjoy him forever. Folks, you and I get to be part of seeing that happen. We get to play our part in the most wonderful thing that will ever happen in the future history of our world. And we can have the time of our lives in the process. We get to enjoy that journey. Right now, you and I, we are already in the most wonderful adventure. Let's stand together, shall we? Let's sing. Let's celebrate. Let's thank God for what he has done. Let's worship him. Let's thank him. Let's praise him. And let's look forward to that great day and all that he's going to do. Thank you, Lord.